On multiple occasions, Barney Hill pulled off the road and made some observations using binoculars. At one point, he got out of his car to look at this object, this craft. He sighted occupants aboard the craft, so he was that close. He could actually see through the windows and visualize occupants extraterrestrials of the craft. They went, and when he saw that, he got this distinct feeling that he was going to be captured. That's the feeling he got. He described that under hypnosis. So he ran back into his car and they took off. And they started hearing a pinging sound. Before, before the hypnosis transpired, that was the extent of their, of their uh, uh, memories. They remember signing the UFO, they heard the sound, and then they robbed it home late. Hey everybody, it's Cam Brower. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast. Tonight in the studio, I have UFO believer and skeptic, William Poulin. We're going to talk about abduction and much, much more coming right up on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. My Alien Life Podcast. Tonight in the studio, my friend and UFO historian, lecturer, researcher, believer, and skeptic, William Poulin. Mr. Poulin is a strong advocate of the scientific method and the extraterrestrial theory. Tonight, we're going to talk about UFOs and scientific research, and William will provide some very objective insight and, as always, a lot of valuable information. William Poulin, thank you for joining me and welcome. Thanks for having me again on, sir. It's uh, great to be here with you, Cameron. Yeah, How good, are you, sir? Good, good. Good to have you along again. Um recently had a, a great discussion with Tom Carey and, and um, I know you've talked to him and, and he stated, yes, nobody is sharing information because they want to write a book, promote themselves and possibly make money. And we've talked about this before. Everybody's doing it. And if you think about it, other disciplines are kind of doing the same thing. So it's not that unusual for these guys to hold on to their information, right? No, no, it, it's not really unreasonable. I mean, after a book is written or a report or a peer-reviewed paper is submitted, 
and is available for everyone to examine, and then a, a total a total uh, sharing of information makes sense. Um, but prior to releasing the book, of course, the authors are going to want to be kind of hold the information close to the cuff, close to their chest, because they're waiting for the book to come out. That way, they have kind of a uh, an ability to control the narrative and discuss the information that they dug up. Uh, instead of having someone else potentially um, hit the ground running with their w- research they didn't do. So uh, that kind of does make sense. But uh, certainly in the UFO field, we do need more information sharing. That's always been an issue between either the government, the military, and also the uh, different civilian organizations that have been, going, that have been um, in operation through the decades. So, and, uh, and Tom is exactly right. In, in today's environment, with uh, the selling of books and the appearances at uh, different conferences as a motivation factor, uh, motivating factor, excuse me, um, that certainly can affect the, let's see, the openness to share information. And at times it affects the integrity of the researchers too. So uh, it can be a very negative situation. And Tom, he, he made no apologies. I mean, he basically, that was, that was um, something that he, I, I didn't even have a question, you know, I didn't question him about that. He brought that up on his own and he stated that, yeah, he, he does hold on to that. And that's, you know, it's part of what they do is, is when they're authors and, and, and writing books, et cetera. But you brought up the fact that the, what about the U S government and the, the military? I mean, obviously they have a potential for sharing. They know some things and it would benefit a guy like you, right? Yes, it would. It would, help. It would uh, benefit mankind, the the uh, the, the general public. Um, you know, the military and the government have always been. Um, they're not very comfortable sharing information. Uh, they use the term national security, and certainly there are things that should not be shared in the name of national security. But having said that, uh, there are. I would imagine, and here I'm just making a, a general statement, I might be dead wrong. Uh, but I would imagine there's a voluminous, a voluminous amount of data, whether it's about UFOs or other, or any other subject matter, that's uh, held in a, held um, in a way that the public can't examine. It, it's, it's, it's top secret, it's, it's classified, it's, it's inaccessible to civilians. Um, is that a positive thing? Um, I, I'm not comfortable with that scenario. I mean, they're they're spending our taxpayer dollars to keep things from us. Some things uh, are reasonable. Most other things are not. I mean, uh, if a UFO crashed in Roswell in '47, that's over 73 years ago. I mean, come on, what's what's the big deal about releasing the information now? Regardless of whether it was extraterrestrial or not, whatever transpired there uh, it shouldn't be that important that they couldn't release it by now. Um, but I just don't think that'll happen. There's a lot of discussion about disclosure nowadays, uh, because of recent events, the last three or four years, I just don't feel that the government or the military has any motivation to release anything they have at this point. Uh, but again, I hope I'm wrong. I might be wrong. Um, but it's, it's, it's certainly a difficult, uh, situation for civilians because people want to know, they want to know what's going on or not going on. And if the government or the military knows things, uh, it would be nice if they would just at least acknowledge something. Even the, even an acknowledgement of their own ignorance would be a positive thing. But we tend to get nothing from them, and that's not a good thing. Sure. And in many applications, yeah. um, 
information is power. And of course we have, uh, we're under the radar, yeah. literally or under satellite surveillance night and day from, yeah, from, from whomever, it doesn't really matter, but them thinking that we could possibly have this, um, major, major, uh, power and, and force that, uh, isn't even, isn't even something that can be measured. And, and I'm talking about extraterrestrial, um, wouldn't that be a, a definite, a definite um, counter weapon to uh, to almost nothing. I mean, basically, it's almost like a cold war, but we're using you know aliens and and technology. Yeah, it's it's uh, you're right. Knowledge is power. That that's a that's a that's a great general statement that applies to any government. The way it interacts with its civilian population. Uh, I've always held the position that the initial cover up of what happened in Roswell, regardless of what the ultimate explanation is whether it was terrestrial, extraterrestrial, what have you. I think the motivation for the cover-up was aligned directly with the Cold War. Uh, if there was some technology there that was recovered, whatever the source was, uh, it does make sense from a military standpoint to make sure your adversary does not have access to it. So if an event happened, and it, uh, clearly an event happened, but whatever the ultimate explanation was, uh, whatever recovered there, we really wouldn't want the Soviets to find out about it, hence a cover-up. So that that scenario is a logical uh, move for the military, regardless of what, regardless of whatever they recovered, be it extraterrestrial or not. Um, and that control of knowledge gives them the ability to control us, control the narrative, control conversation, control the amount of knowledge we have, and it gets to the point where. If the military or the government is engaging in a level of disinformation, and I've discussed this with some other researchers and individuals, um, there comes a point where that that effort isn't needed anymore. I mean, the the UFO community, and this is going to sound this is going to sound really negative, but the UFO community has done a good enough job providing its own disinformation to itself for about twenty years now, uh, because we believe everything. There's no critical thinking. There's no People don't do any homework. And I think part of that is the, uh, the internet. People can just look things up on the internet without really thinking and they find what they want to see and what, they, and what they're researching and they're happy. Instead of finding information and first thinking, okay, is this information valid? Is it legitimate? Or is the whole this illegitimate information? They don't do that. They just accept it at face value and it may be inaccurate information. But if it's accepted at, as, as valid, well, that that doesn't get us anywhere either. So, um, yeah, right. Knowledge is power, but the consumption of knowledge, or uh, the way we consume information, uh, goes a long way to where we end up. And right now, in this society, we're in this environment, we're not processing information correctly, or at least cautiously enough. Sure. Obviously, it makes it uh, much easier for all involved if we share unconditionally, which is almost impossible. But how can we get yeah. the scientific yeah. community get together to do this? And when I say community, I mean, you know, a multidisciplinary approach by the whole scientific community. How can we get that to happen? How do we you make it happen? Yeah, um, it can happen. Will it happen? I don't know if it will. It can, though. I, I, I take a personal approach to it as, as a professional researcher, as a historian, by simply conducting myself on a, in a very professional way. 
in my interactions with other people in the community, be it they be it whether they're researchers or not, or if I'm at a public event, I have to look and act professional. Anything less is unacceptable because it 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 continues this this perception that the UFO field is more of a pseudoscience instead of an actual legitimate investigative effort. Um, so if researchers and authors would act more professional, more objective, uh, more scientific and more grounded and use more critical thinking, that would make the field appear and be viewed in a more legitimate light, which would, as a result, possibly make the scientific community look at us in a more legitimate light. But since we're not there yet, they look at the UFO field like, oh, that's just paranormal, that's pseudoscience. We're not going to give them the time of day. That's where we've been since, since the 50s. So... Uh, it begins from within. The change needs to come from within. It can happen, but I don't know if it will, because that kind of change doesn't sell tickets. Obviously, some of this information gets shared in the end. I mean, people actually publish books, and and um, you know they're they're making films, and all we have to do is read some books. Um, is that all the information in the book, or they hold back until the next book? Do you think it's all available at at the moment, or are we? Uh, playing a constant waiting game for this information? Um, I don't know. Uh, I think a lot of researchers, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'm sorry, you can tell I'm, I'm very <laughs> no, comfortable. No, that's true. I don't know. I, yeah. um, I don't know. Um, you know, a lot of researchers, the researchers I know, some of the authors I know personally on a, on a, on a one-on-one uh, basis, uh, tend to reveal the information that they have that they can verify whether they're writing in a paper or a book or presentation or lecture or whatever, whatever the case may be, they present as much information as they can specific to the topic, specific to the book or the lecture they're giving. As long as they've been able to verify the information, information they've not been able to verify, they will tend to hold back from releasing until they've done their homework, until that information is held up under scrutiny. Because otherwise, if they bring it out and then it's later proven incorrect, it puts them in a bad light. And which is a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing for a researcher to admit when they're wrong. It's not a bad thing for an author to say this information in this book that I wrote 10 years ago has not held up after further investigation. That's the way it is. And, and somehow that's a bad thing in today's environment. Uh, but we all forget that our level of knowledge changes as time goes on with further research. Things we thought were true have been proven false. And vice versa, our level of knowledge changes as we progress. And um, do researchers hold things back? Uh, I I don't know, but I think possibly they do because uh, they're in the middle of furthering their investigations. I do think, though, the public does not read footnotes enough. They don't really look into the information that's actually given to them. Because I'm not sure, here I am being negative again, I'm not sure all authors verify all the information themselves. When they quote books from the past, they may not vet that information properly. And that's an issue too. But um, that's a long-winded way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> well, and I think knowledge, again, is power. So if you give up yeah. everything, you know, it's, it's, it's holding back reasonably makes you think that uh, you have something left in you and, and something to give you that edge. So I can, I can understand why that would happen. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some of the cases that you've looked at over the years and, and we can look at how historically they were researched and how that research could look differently, maybe with new equipment, um, new methodology. Um, 
One of the first abduction cases, of course, 1961, uh, Betty and Barney Hill explain that abduction for everybody in the scenario here. And um, maybe uh, what did the research look like in 1961 for that case? Well, Betty Barney Hill were a mixed race couple and they were abducted in late uh, 1961. The, the story didn't come out until a couple years later. Uh, they were going on vacation in Canada and they were driving home through New Hampshire. And they arrived home and they were missing some time. Um, as the story came out about the abduction accounts through hypnosis, um, the stories matched up between them. They were hypnotized separately by a Boston-based uh, specialist, uh, Benjamin Simon. And um, his conclusion was that they believed they had been abducted by aliens. They had been, they, he, he felt they believed wholeheartedly they had been taken aboard a flying saucer and experimented on. Uh, he did not believe in the reality of the event, but he believed that they believed it, which are two distinct things. Um, but they arrived home and they were missing some time, and they both felt uncomfortable. They, they were unsettled emotionally, physically. Uh, they were troubled by this missing amount of time, and the events didn't start to come to light until months later. Um, like all other abduction cases, or virtually all of them, um, we're relying on the testimony of the individuals in question. And, and I say that cautiously as a researcher, but I'm a, I'm a data driven guy, but there have been no red flags with this case. There's been no information that's come to light to show that either Betty Hill or Barney Hill hoaxed anything or lied about their experience. Therefore, um, I'm comfortable enough saying that this event transpired. They were abducted by, uh, let's say, non-terrestrial UFO occupants. And something happened aboard that craft or ship or whatever you want to call it. And they were let go and released and went about their business. Uh, I think the event transpired as the hills describe it. I think it's one of the few abduction accounts we can definitively say that. But that's my, profes- that's my professional opinion because there's been no data to show that they hoaxed or lied about anything. Uh, so you can only take it at face value. So um, the accounts match up perfectly. Um, there's some physical evidence. There were some marks left behind on the hood of the car. Uh, there were some magnetic traces surrounding the car. There was Betty Hill's damaged dress, which had some uh, alleged organic material on the dress, which was later tested and showed to be organic, but it wasn't really, it wasn't definitively proven to be non-terrestrial. So that's troubling, but that doesn't, that still is organic material. So, so in this case, you've got some, you've got some level of physical evidence, which is more than some other abduction cases. And you're always looking for multiple chains. You're always looking for testimony. You're always looking for physical evidence. And in this case, you have both. Um, and they really didn't capitalize on the case from a financial standpoint. They didn't sell any books. They didn't make a movie that they directly profited from. There were books written by other authors. There was a TV movie done back in 75, The UFO Incident. But Betty and Barney Hill themselves did not profit from the story. In fact, they didn't want the story to come out at all. So they clearly weren't motivated by 
profit by money. Uh, they didn't. They wanted to keep this under wraps and just find out what had gone on. But uh, to my mind, that's one of the stronger abduction cases. Um, and I and to extend that thought process further, um, I, I don't think abductions are as common as what is believed in the UFO community. But having said that, I still believe they transpire. I still I still think that's a legitimate phenomenon. I just don't think it's happened thousands of times. I think it's happened. Uh, I, I can't put a number on it, but I just don't think it's as commonplace as what's perceived or believed in the UFO community nowadays. Had you ever come across since, uh, you know, in the last 10 years or so, any other incidents that re- were reported before 1961? Abductions? Um, well, there was a case that was reported, but it wasn't, it didn't come to light or it didn't come to the, to the awareness of the American public till the late 60s. Um, what was his name? There was a gentleman, Antonio Vilas Boas. He was a Brazilian yeah. gentleman. Uh, he was abducted in the late fifties, according to his account. And, uh, he was doing some work in his field late at night because it's pretty hot in Brazil. And, uh, side of UFO, the UFO descended to his level down almost near ground level. Uh, his tractor, uh, died out. The engine died out. He was taken aboard a craft forcibly by several individuals. Uh, stripped down naked. There was a fluid, um, a fluid rubbed all over his body until his naked body. A female alien joined him in the, uh, the room or the, or the area of the ship that he was in and they engaged in sexual relations twice. And then she left. He was taken, his closure given back to him. He was taken out of the ship and that was it. That was, and I'm leaving a lot of details out. That's a general idea of the story. Um, that report didn't come to light until the late 60s in a book by Coral Lawrenson entitled The Uf- um, entitled UFO Occupants. Uh, Coral Lawrenson and her husband Jim uh, were the heads of the um, Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, better known as APRO. That went defunct in the early 80s, so mid-80s, I should say, when the Lawrenson passed away. Uh, but that case appeared in that book. That was after the Hill abduction case had come to light. But the date of it was 1958, I believe. Uh, I'm sure somebody will send me an email and correct me, but I think it's 1958. Um, but that's the only case that's, that's really on the books that has been definitively shown to be a valid case prior to the Hill abduction. After the Hill abduction, it kind of was still not, it was somewhat of a rare event, uh, abductions, until you get to about the late 70s, early 80s. Then it seems to become more of a common occurrence. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother discussion because sure. most UFO reports aren't reported. So whatever ideas we have about how common they are, are kind of skewed because most reports don't come to light. So, um, yeah. So at the time of Betty and Barney Hill, what did the, what did the investigation look like? Who was looking into that? And of course they've been looking into it ever since, but initially for the first few years after who was looking into it and what did that look like? Well, the Hills contacted, uh, I think it was Pease Air Force Base, which was the nearest military installation to their location in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, Pease Air Force Base, they, they pretty much got no response. The Air Force Base said that they had not detected anything on radar in the area during the time frame in question. Uh, they were looking for some sort of clue as to what may have gone on. And uh, it may have been already in their head subconsciously that, that, that it, it involved a flying saucer or a UFO. 
So that avenue went by the wayside. Uh, interestingly enough, this is prior to MUFON arriving on the scene in 1970 or 69. So the only groups in the operation were NICAP and APRO. NICAP was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. Uh, but NICAP's, NICAP's uh, operating procedure was that they really didn't, they weren't interested in UFO occupant cases. And there were many on the books, but there were a few cases where aliens were sighted, or at least occupants of the craft were sighted, and NICAP was not comfortable investigating those cases. APRO, on the other hand, was. Um, and this was the first abduction case. There were a few cases on the books before that described UFO occupants, but there was never any one-on-one interaction like in the Hill case prior to this case. Um, and I believe it was James Harder they spoke to. And Harder encouraged them to find some uh, a medical a medical professional who could help them out, and that's how they sought out and found uh, Benjamin Simon, who was based in Boston. Uh, Simon abducted them separately, and recorded the abduction, uh, recorded the uh, hypnosis sessions. Those are actually available on YouTube, and it's it's bizarre to listen to those to those things, those recordings, because Barty Hill he's losing it. He's emotionally He's done. I mean, he is distraught, almost screaming, crying. He's, he has lost it emotionally as much as a grown man can. So he's clearly troubled by these memories that are coming, that are flooding back through hypnosis. So, um, so that was the extent of the investigation per se at that point. Um, and that's kind of the way it goes with abduction cases because you can, you can collect testimony and, um, Physical evidence is so hard to find in these cases, uh, usually because they're not reported very quickly. They're not reported within, say, a day of the occurrence. It's always after the fact. So it's very hard to get physical evidence. And two, once you're, you're dealing with just with testimonies, so uh, the investigative techniques employed then haven't really changed even to this point now in time. Uh, it's still regression, regression hypnosis, one-on-one interviews, um, the seeking out of other of other uh, possible uh, witnesses, uh, which is a difficult task in itself. That's, that's, but it's kind of it's kind of where we're at now. So that what what transpired with the Hill abduction, as far as from the, from an investigative standpoint, kind of is the same thing going on now. So, yeah, Barney had a rough time. I, I think he died. He was like forty six years old, and um, Betty lived a long time. I think she died when she was in her eighties, but. Um, did um, we're talking about the hypnosis again? At that particular time, I mean, obviously hypno- hypnotists weren't trained in, in this sort of event. So, um, do you have any information on yeah. what that event really, how that transpired, and and uh, what the aftermath was with the hypnosis? Well, the hills described sighting a UFO as they were driving along the road. Um, on multiple occasions, Barney Hill pulled off the road and made some observations using binoculars. At one point, he got out of his car to look at this object, this craft. He sighted occupants aboard the craft. So he was that close. He could actually see through the windows and visualize occupants, extraterrestrials, on the craft. Um, they went, and when he saw that, he got this a distinct feeling that he was going to be captured. That's the feeling he got. He described that under hypnosis. So he ran back into his car and they took off. 
and they started hearing a pinging sound. And before before the hypnosis transpired, that was the extent of their of their uh, uh, memories. They remember seeing the UFO. They heard the sound, and then they arrived at home late. Uh, uh, they arrived home late, excuse me. Uh, but under hypnosis, uh, they were pulled off to the side of the road. They were they were taken aboard the ship by several individuals. Uh, they were described as having cat-like eyes. Barney Hill described their uniforms as looking like Nazi-style World War II uniforms with caps on, which is very interesting because, one, a great majority of individuals that are described as being extraterrestrials don't wear uniforms, certainly not uniforms that look like modern military uniforms. Two, these, these extraterrestrials had opposable thumbs, which most Let's, let's say the grays. The grays tend not to be described with opposable thumbs. They're, they have four fingers or three fingers at them. The hills both describe opposable thumbs. And three, they describe these, these extraterrestrials as having cat-like eyes and pupils, not the normal almond-shaped black giant eyes that are common to how grays are described nowadays, like the cover of uh, Willie Strieber's book, um, uh, Communion, yeah. that kind of look. So there's, that's a distinct difference from what was described in later decades. Um, Barney Hill, was, evidently, and Betty Hill described this under hypnosis, that uh, the aliens seemed to be troubled or had trouble understanding the differences, one, between their genders, two, between the sexes, and three, the fact that uh, Barney had false teeth. Uh, the aliens were unaware, they were, they were unable to understand those those things. Uh, the aliens evidently were uncomfortable with or unable to just to uh, understand the concept of time. Um, so there's a few things there that seem common sense to us in our typical mundane lifestyles here on Earth that these individuals, these extraterrestrials, uh, were unaware of, uh, which may say more about them than us if we're, we're, if we're going if we're making those kind of statements. It may show. It may tell more about their, about themselves as a species or a society than it says more about us. Uh, but they were they were examined separately. Uh, Betty Hill was given a pregnancy test, what she described as a pregnancy test. A needle was inserted into a navel uh, in the process of her medical examination. And interestingly enough, that procedure was not known to medical science for another half decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an interesting point of uh, contention with this case. She described a medical procedure, uh, procedure not known to science for a few more years after that. So that, that's very interesting. Um, Barty Hill fainted before, even, before he was on board the craft. So he was clearly already emotionally distraught by this whole situation. Uh, eventually, they were both taken back onto the craft, into their, back into their car, where their Dotson Delcy was waiting patiently in the back seat, and um, they drove home. So that, again, that's leaving out a lot of details, but that's kind of the that's kind of the general idea of what they described under hypnosis. And and I guess one other detail I left out, which was kind of important, was at some point Betty Hill wanted proof of the abduction, and the leader, or at least the extraterrestrial she thought was the leader was going to allow her to take a book home. 
But when the crew found out about that that uh, that book that Betty Hill was going to take home, they took it from her. And evidently, she was a little upset about that happening. She wanted proof to take home about what 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 happened here. But um, and at some point in that that scenario, she was shown a map of the local star groups around Earth, and there were lines and dotted dotted lines and different things drawn on the map that meant different things to the extraterrestrials. Uh, one evidently was trade routes. The other one was exploratory trips to other star systems, one of which was to our star system. Uh, and evidently under, under, under hypnosis, Betty Hill describes a, just a uh, conversation. And it wasn't really stated whether the conversation was verbal or a form of mental communication. But she, she asked, uh, one of the, the extraterrestrial that she felt with the leader asked her to point out her son her star system and Betty Hill was unable to. And the leader of the crew basically said, uh, or was reported to say that, well, there was no point in telling her where we came from. If you can't point out your own star system. Uh, so it, and then that's, that's come under fire in later decades, in later decades. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating case, but so, because so much was taken, so much was recovered, through hypnosis, so many details that that have some have held up under scrutiny. So it's still a strong case, um, despite the naysayers. How do you think that should have been handled? I mean, if you were today, if that happened today, and you were a lead investigator on the team, um, what would that look like now? <sighs> well, you know, I'm I'm very uncomfortable with hypnosis because medical professionals don't know how it works. And there's a lot of people in the community, in the research community, that are conducting regression hypnosis, but they're not medical professionals. So, to my mind, they're not qualified to do that. Now, having said that, um, I think when done carefully by a professional and asking only questions that don't lead the individual to any direction, you can recover some interesting data you can recover some interesting memories that can possibly cooperate some level of physical evidence um the fact that they were hypnotized separately goes a long way um because prior to those sessions uh betty and barney hill had not really recovered many memories so they really have they really didn't have much to discuss with each other about what happened because they couldn't remember if they remembered a lot of the case, a lot of what transpired, then they would have, they could have possibly tainted each other's memories because of all the conversations they had. That didn't happen. Uh, they didn't remember it. So they had nothing to talk about. So the fact that their testimony under hypnosis matches up so well, I think is a big, uh, a big reason why this case is still pretty strong because of that factor. Uh, the small amount of physical evidence is a big deal. That's the guy that goes a long way. Um, I think more need to be done as far as uh, Tracy or trying to track down any possible radar traces, not just Pease Air Force Base, um, in an effort to possibly triangulate where this UFO may have been. That wasn't really pursued. 
Um, and another point of view would have helped if my cap had been more enamored with abduction cases or UFO occupant cases, as they were called at the time. You would have had two investigative groups approaching this case from different angles. That would have gone a long way. But being that it was just APRO investigating it, um, and they did a good enough job for what they had available to them at the time. Um, the case was investigated in a pretty, pretty, a pretty objective way for its time period. There, there are clearly things we could have done better. Uh, more could have been done with it. But in the grand scheme of things, it was investigated in a pretty legitimate way for being at what was it, 1961, 62, 63. That's, it was up pretty well for the time frame. Um, I, I don't really have any trouble with the way it was, uh, investigated beyond uh, my cautious approach toward hypnosis. Uh, but beyond that, I think they did a good job. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the, the military really wasn't that involved. Um, being that they actually called and, and tried to make an effort to touch base with them. They did the, the, did the military kind of, uh, ignore it or did they just go through their paces and, and lose interest? Well, you know, it, it's, um, there's, there's no data to suggest that the military tried to cover it up. It seems that the, that the military simply stated what they knew, that they had no evidence of a UFO on radar and nothing showed up on their screen. And they may have been just simply telling the truth. Um, they didn't seem to make any kind of effort to really, uh, really investigate the case um, in a way that's apparent to us. They may have, through back channels, they may have done it covertly, but uh, there's no real uh, there's no real paper trail for whether or not they investigated this in a legitimate manner, as opposed to other cases which uh, uh, were not UFO, were not abduction related. And I, what comes to mind is like the Socorro case of '64, the landing case in New Mexico. There's there's a distinct paper trail because the military was intimately connected with the investigation, but the Hill abduction, no, not really. Um, they just kind of let things go. Um, they, they didn't seem very interested in looking at the case at all, even on a cursory, you know, even a cursory examination. So, um, now again, I, I keep saying, I don't know, but they, they may have done an investigation, uh, through back channels. They may have done an investigation that wasn't really public that we don't know about, but at this point in time, there's no data to suggest that. So it seems that it was just strictly, APRO and the Hills uh, finding their own way to investigate what went on uh, back in 61. And clearly they were motivated because they were, this isn't just like a daylight, a daylight disc sighting or nocturnal lights. They were emotionally and physically uh, very disturbed by what happened. So they were very motivated to find some answers, um, which a lot of other individuals aren't. A lot of other individuals that see a UFO, it doesn't affect them in the way they did the hills. But when you talk about abductions, that's a very personal experience. So clearly people are much more motivated to find answers or at least find out what may have gone on or find out they're not going crazy. Um, and the hills definitely did that. Moving forward just a little bit. And uh, again, we're talking about abduction 
and that scientific method of research. Um, in 1973, there were a couple of guys, Charles Hickson, Calvin Parker, and everybody knows the story out there, but um, fishing in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and uh, they had a pretty terrifying experience terrifying experience um of course now um one of the things uh, calvin parker um he wrote a very good book about it and a very interesting man to talk to and now he has a new book that's coming out very soon and they're calling that one pascagoula the story continues new evidence and new witnesses so let's talk about that and give a little backstory on, on that one if you would william well the pascagoula abduction occurred in october of 73 that was in the midst of a major flap, the first flap that had transpired since Blue Book had closed in 69. Um, the majority of the UFO sightings that occurred during that flap were non-abduction related. Uh, but this clearly was. It was uh, Hickson and Parker uh, that were, uh, they were fishing along a pier in Pascagoula, Mississippi. When they sighted a craft that descended upon their location and they witnessed several creatures exit the craft. The creatures were described as tall with leathery like elephantine type skin, uh, leathery with uh, pointed cone type protrusions where the ears would be no eyes, no mouth and a single leg with a foot at the very bottom. Um, they were taken aboard this craft and again examined in what might be perceived as a medical procedure. Um, and I'm drawing a blank here. I know one of the individuals, uh, I don't know who was Parker or Hickson, um, fell unconscious during the encounter. Again, because it's such a traumatic experience, that kind of would explain why that happened. Um, the encounter didn't last very long. Uh, the majority of these abduction accounts seem to last at best, maybe two hours. It's not a protracted amount of time. People are gone. Um, if we just, if we end up discussing Travis Warden later on tonight, that was a different scenario. But again, the Pascagoula encounter, same thing, not, not a very long time. Um, the two individuals were taken back to uh, the pier, released there, and the craft disappeared into the sky. Uh, they ended up calling the police. And in an interesting turn of events, which really makes this case, I think, uh, not just extremely interesting, but it really, uh, it makes it much more stronger, is the fact that at some point, the police interviewed both gentlemen. They ended up leaving them alone in the interview room. And if two individuals are hoaxing testimony, making up a story, you would think when the police leave the room, they might be motivated to talk about the hoax. They might be laughing among themselves saying, oh, we, we pulled the wool over their eyes. We're making up a story. They're believing it. We got them. Those kind of comments. That didn't happen. Uh, the police recorded them after they left the room, recorded uh, Hickson and Parker. And both gentlemen continued talking about what happened. They continued with their commentary that was emotional, disturbed. Uh, they were very upset, um, distraught about what happened. To my mind, again, that leads me to believe the case is valid 
and it's a valid example of alien abduction. Uh, again, to this point in time, there has been no data that's come to light to show any hoaxing that's going on. No data has come to light to show that they lied about the case or lied about what transpired or anything of that matter. Um, now, the difference between this case and the Hill abduction is there's a shortage of physical evidence. Uh, and that's not saying much because the Hill abduction didn't have much physical evidence at all, but it did have a little bit. This one has virtually none. But again, no hoaxing has been determined. No hoaxing has showed up. So I think these two gentlemen have been telling the truth for all these decades. Um, it's interesting that during that flap in October 73, it was a little longer than October actually, but, but the, the highest, the most uh, intense part of the, of the flap was in October of that year. Um, he was virtually the only multiple witness abduction account that came to life. Uh, there's other multiple witness cases, but there were UFO sightings, not specifically abductions. Uh, so that's quite interesting about this case. So um, in my mind, it's one of the stronger cases on the books. Um, and again, it was, it was at this, at this point in time, APRO and NICAP were still in operation. NICAP was still not enamored with abduction cases. APRO was still comfortable with it. MUFON was getting its feet wet with UFO abductions, uh, but I'm not sure if they really investigated this case uh, as well as NICAP, as well as NICAP or APRO did. Uh, part of that may be because MUFON had only been around about four years at the time, so uh, they may not have had any teams to examine this case. So, um, I, I think this, one of the most remarkable things yeah. to me is, a, is the amount of publicity that this got. And the amount of people who who were there, I mean, obviously they had the local law enforcement doing an interview, but um, there were subsequent interviews and, and the story stayed the same and and um, it, it was known all over the U.S., right? Yeah, yep. The story had a lot of, had some legs under it. You know, it was well known. It was, um, uh, there's, there's been a few cases like that. The, the Socorro case was well covered in the news. This case was well covered. The Travis Walton event was well covered. How did this? For how did the? Time. How did the publicity though get out so fast on this one? Any idea? I mean, it was it was um, it was coast to coast, and it didn't take take that long. And um, back then, you know, it, we didn't have internet, and we had phone, we had radio, and yeah. and uh, it was huge. Any idea how that and why uh, it got so big? My, you know, my gut tells me that it was a small town. Everybody knows each other, and that someone in the police station or multiple individuals there just talked to the media. Uh, there wasn't really an effort to uh, keep it secret. So I think it just, people just ran with it and the information was out there and just, it just ran, it, it just exploded. Um, you arrive on the testimony, the testimony is held up. Uh, you know, again, the story has not changed uh, during multiple interviews by investigators and other individuals that have talked to, uh, um, he's in Parker, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, excuse me. I finally got their names right in my head. Um, their story has not changed, not at all. The, the details have not changed. But you would think if they were hoaxing this or making it up, that details would change or they would add details as time went on. That's usually what happens when people hoax something. They, they add details to make the case more exciting, make the case more uh, viable for media coverage. 
this did not transpire. Um, so uh, again, it, it, I, I think I feel it's a valid case. Um, this is after Blue Book closed, so Alan Hynek was free to investigate cases in a more objective light as opposed to being under the thumb of the Air Force. So by this time in 73, I believe he had already established the uh, Center for UFO Studies over in Evanston, Evanston uh, Illinois. Um, he examined the case. I don't know how thoroughly he did, but he felt it was a, it was a legitimate case of alien abduction. And Hanek, being a scientist, was a cautious individual. But for him to make that statement, I think, speaks volumes. Um, and now today, with the new books coming out, the case has gotten kind of re-examined after having been uh, not forgotten, but not really, not really looked at thoroughly for a few decades. And it still, it still, uh, it still holds up. It's still a valid case. It's an important case. It's part of it's a part of a major flap, and it's a it's kind of a cornerstone case. There's been there's a few abduction cases, and we've discovered two of them already tonight that are kind of the cornerstones of the abduction scenario, um, because they've held up under scrutiny and intense scrutiny. There's been an intense effort to find any evidence of hoaxing, and none has come to light. So to me, that says valid case. They even have a Philip Mantle, who's, who's been working on the, the new book with Calvin Parker, um, has contacted or has been contacted by a firsthand eyewitness. And she was actually says she was on the opposite side of the Pascagoula River the night that um, was gone on record for the this um, abduction and uh, yeah. saw one of the gray humanoids depart from back across the river. And then she also saw a UFO take off at high speed. So, um you know, this is de- developing news as we're as we're actually talking about it tonight. Is that's yeah, something that's going on now, and and it'll be interesting to to read that new book about um, Calvin Parker when that comes out soon. And, yeah, it, it, it's always good when we get more information. You know, again, we have to vet the witness, we have to vet the information. But if we're able to find more information, we're able to find independent witnesses that add strength to a case because it becomes it gets it away from a single witness scenario or two witnesses. It becomes multiple witnesses, some of which were not involved in the abduction. Um, and that's another interesting point that there are very few multiple witness abduction cases because usually the abduction case involves only that person, only the person being abducted. On a few rare occasions, uh, you get a witness that witnessed the abduction from afar and that's the case here in Pascagoula. So um, that goes a long way. That's making this case that much stronger. So um, there's something to be said for re-examining old cases because you can find more sources of, of information. That goes a long way. And, of course, a couple of years after that, a, a very, very widely heard of um, abduction incident that uh, was the victim was Travis Walton. And um, that was on November fifth, nineteen seventy five, in um, Arizona. Which, which, to me, this one is unusual because um, Travis Walton. He, it wasn't a two hour abduction. He was gone for a while. How long was he gone? I think five days. Yeah, it, it's from that point alone. That standpoint alone, this case is 
uh, quite interesting because you're not talking about an event that took place over a few hours. You're talking a week almost. Um, it's a whole different animal now. Have, so, you, have you ever met Travis Walton? Yes, on multiple occasions in Roswell. Yeah. He's a very laid back, quiet gentleman. Very laid back. And to, um, to him, it seems like it's very serious business. He he shows up in a suit and tie and and uh, much like yourself. So, I mean, it again, in the far believability of this and his professionalism, I mean, basically that's one of the things that stands out to me. Yeah, I mean, that, that's going to the way the, going back to the scenario of how the UFO field can, can improve itself, a level of professionalism goes a long way. Uh, especially in, in your public interactions with attendees at a conference, your interactions with other researchers, your interactions with authors. You need to be professional at all times. Anything less is unacceptable. And so Travis, Travis is a very professional guy. Students high, cordial, polite, accommodating, um, very quiet, laid back. Uh, if he wasn't asked a question, you, he may not utter a word. He's very quiet. Very cordial, very polite. Um, uh, I find him. I find him believable. Uh, yes, there are some red flags in the case, but there are with every UFO case. I mean, that's that's just the nature of the animal. So, um, but it's clearly affected his life because he describes himself prior to the abduction as being a typical wild, fun-loving, not I guess wild is the wrong word, energetic, young, youthful. 20 some odd year old man. Um, after the abduction, it, he changed. He changed into the quiet gentleman he is today. Uh, so clearly an event transpired that had such an effect on him. It, it made him do a 180. It changed him in ways that um, go above and beyond just his physical appearance, go above and beyond his emotional well-being. It affected him as a person in a very deep manner. So, um, uh, a proper booking case to say the least. Yeah. And I think what the, to me and, and, uh, Calvin Parker obviously, um, was one of the first UFO stories that I was able to hear of. Um, when I was, when I was a kid and at home back in the day, we, we had a radio station and they actually had a UFO report and I got to listen to that. And of course the second one was Travis Walton. And um, yeah. that was a story that they had on in multiple days. And um, those two stories, you know, just uh, I remember, remember being terrified as a kid because, you know, I lived in one of those places where, um, you know, this Montana endless sky and these deep, deep, dark nights and no uh, street lights. So it was, it was pretty yeah. amazing place to, to be able to see weird things in the sky. So, um, so what, what actually happened after Travis Walton, after he made his reappearance or emergence from, from this abduction, um, it, it became a huge, huge story. And, um, you know, it wasn't long after that originally happened that I was able to hear it on, about that on the radio. So what, what, at the time, was it a huge news story? I mean, was it TV, radio, newspaper? Uh, pretty much all three. They, again, it got a lot of coverage in multiple media outlets. Um, while he was gone, uh, the fellow, the other, the remainder of the crew, the logging crew, uh, they ended up taking a lot of detector tests. All of them passed except one, and only because he was 
uh, he'd had some issues with the law before, so he may have been just so nervous he couldn't give definitive answers. Um, so it showed up on the test. Um, so they made themselves available for examination. They weren't hiding anything, but they had no idea what transpired. Uh, this is an interesting case because the UFO was sighted by multiple witnesses. Everybody at the crew saw it from their truck, and they saw what happened to Walton. He was hit by a beam of light and knocked out. They took off because they were scared to death. They came back a few minutes later, he was gone, and the UFO was gone. Um, so this went from a multiple witness UFO sighting, a close encounter of the second kind because they were so close to it, to a abduction case, a single witness abduction case, but an abduction case nonetheless. One of the last five days where there's physical uh, conditions that lead one to believe that Walton was abducted and was gone for five days. Now, there's a few issues with the case. Walton did fail a lie detector test, but those are not those are not set in stone. You, lie detector tests are, uh, even in courts of law, they're not accepted at face value always. So there's, there's issues with that. Uh, they can be very subjective. Um, physical evidence in his body, uh, the, his body showed signs of duress. His body showed signs of being deprived of nutrients for five days. So clearly something happened to him. Um, did the other uh, members of his crew that he was working with, did they actually see him go up into the craft? No. He was struck by a beam from the craft, knocked out. They assumed he was dead. They drove off. Hmm. And that was the last they saw of him. When they returned to the field or the open area in the forest where the sighting took place, he was gone and the UFO was gone. There was no sign of him. So they never saw him taken into the, into the, uh, into the craft. So what the was, what was it. their reaction? And, um, you know, did they, did they, did they notify authorities and, um, was it a full scale search for Travis Walton at that point? They did. They notified authorities pretty much immediately. And there was a search parties taken out to the, to the site on multiple days, uh, including search dogs. Uh, no sign was found of Walton, uh, not a trace, not even set, nothing. Wow. Um, so they were very cooperative. Uh, law enforcement was, in, was involved and there was no sign of Walton. Uh, of course, law enforcement is going to make the first logical assumption that they somehow were involved directly with his disappearance. Uh, which is not unreasonable. I mean, uh, but there was no data to support that. So that idea went by the wayside, particularly when Walton reappeared, um, when he came back from wherever he was. Um, so they informed, they informed the police almost immediately. So there was no cover-up of stuff. There was no reaction to what are we going to do? What, what are we going to do? They immediately went to the police. They were scared to death. Uh, and even, uh, what was his name? Um, Alan Dulles, who is uh, the individual who flunked the initial lie detector test. And he actually passed one almost a decade later with flying colors. Uh, even he, who had, had run-ins with the law, had no qualms about informing the police uh, because of what happened. It was such a traumatic experience that uh, they all immediately reported what they saw. And this is another case of a small town, uh, Snowflake, Arizona, that uh, everyone knew each other. Uh, they'd known each other for decades. It's like everyone's one big family. So 
they were very comfortable reporting this thing. Um, it put it cast those gentlemen in a difficult light because not everybody in the town believed them. They thought they had murdered Walton. They thought they had abducted him and something. So they were, they were making up the case. There were all sorts of stories around this that weren't true. Um, but they, but despite the potentialities of those negative stories, they still went straight to the police and there were search parties taken out there on multiple days and nights and nothing was found. And then Walton reappears after five days. He called, I believe it was his sister's house. His sister was married. No, his sister-in-law's house. Uh, called and they picked him up. He was several miles out of town and he had been through the ringer <laughs> to say the least. Right. So, uh, but again, no sign of hoaxing. No data has come to light to show that this is a hoax. So one of the, again, a cornerstone case. One of the things I'm reading right now is it says that uh, Walton, his older brother, and his mother were described by the Navajo County, Arizona Sheriff as longtime students of UFOs. Is that Does that mean after or previous? Were they UFO enthusiasts before this actually happened? They were, they were enthusiastic about it before, yeah. So there's also uh, a, a, a thing yeah. that was going on at the same time. The National Enquirer awarded uh, Walton and his coworkers a five thousand dollar prize for best UFO case of the year. Is that well? They had to. They actually had to pass pass a polygraph test. And that was that was a legend. I don't know if they actually if they actually collected that reward. I don't know that that reward was out there. The Enquirer uh, was. Offering I don't remember that. that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, I recall that distinctly. Um, yeah, they were they were they were enthusiastic about the UFO issue. Um, Walton had actually, Travis Walton had actually watched the, uh, ironically, the UFO incident starring uh, Stel Getty and uh, James Earl Jones, which was the TV movie based on the Betty Barty Hill abduction. Uh, he had watched that, I think that was a few weeks before um, the abduction. Does that make, does that taint his testimony? Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. Surely it could. But just because someone is enamored with the UFO topic doesn't mean they're going to hoax something. Doesn't mean they're going to make up information. Um, were they aware of the UFO phenomenon? Yes. Were they fans of, or they were, were they enthusiastic about the topic? Yes. Uh, but again, do I think they hoaxed this? No, they didn't. Uh, they were just part of a an event that transpired that changed their lives, especially Travis Walton changed his life completely. So, um, and that, that's a question that comes up sometimes in UFO cases. Are you aware of the UFO phenomenon? Are you, do you have UFO books? Do you watch the UFO TV series? Uh, as if that taints their testimony, as if that makes them more liable to hoax something. And I don't think it does. Um, but that's my personal opinion. Um, so in this case, yeah, he, he was aware of those things, but, it didn't seem to. It didn't seem to influence what he described at all. Has he been making a living off this ever since, or did did he have other employment afterwards? Uh, well, he was helping his friend um, Mike. Mike, I mean, the last name is escaping me right now. Um, in in, in in finishing up law cutting contracts um, around the area, so that's how he was making a living with that and small law jobs. Uh, after that, I'm unaware of how he how he uh, made a living. Now, at this point in time, Travis has been very active in the UFO 
circuit, as you, as I would say. He's done a lot of conferences. He's at a lot of festivals, makes a lot of appearances. Um, is he paid for those appearances? I don't know. I mean, that's his own private business. I don't, I don't ask him that. That would be uh, unprofessional on my, on my part to ask him those things. Is it a legitimate question? Uh, yes, it is. Um, but I don't know if he can really make a living on the UFO circuit, per se, unless you're one of the big names <laughs> that's writing books and making every appearance and is on TV shows and is really out there. My mind goes to like someone like um, Corey Good or uh, some of these ancient aliens guys that have a TV show and books and appearances. Then I might think, okay, this guy's making a living doing this. Uh, but, but Travis has only written one book and he does make appearances, but it takes time and money to travel to all these places. So I think it's just a, it's a, a pursuit of a passion for him. So, um, so he was with six uh, other people at the time. Did they ever discuss or have you ever heard why he actually got out of the truck and, and walked toward this thing? I mean, to me, that just sounds well, I, crazy. Yeah, but- I, you know, uh, I, I know he discussed with his friend, Mike, and um, again, I can't, I can't believe I can't remember the guy's last name. Um, and I apologize to the listener. Um, they discussed it at length because they were good friends. And Travis has stated multiple, multiple occasions that he's told me in person in Roswell, he has no idea why he exited the craft. No idea. Um, if he had to do it over again, he would not have done that. Uh, he realizes how foolhardy it was, but it happened. Um, they're young, I think he young guys. Fascinated by it. Yeah, yeah, young guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Young and experienced. He just saw a UFO, decided to go out and check it out, and things happen. You know, I I, I think in, in those kind of scenarios, it might happen to all of us. If we saw a UFO 100 feet off the ground, we might exit our, our car or, or leave our house to go look at it and not really think about the ramifications of our actions. Um, but I think that's what clearly happened to the young guy. Curious, curiosity got the best of him. It just happened to. It just happened that he ended up getting caught up in a a, uh, a life changing event as a result of that. Mike Rogers is that his name? Mike Rogers, yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> so he was. You got it. Uh, they had. They had. Uh, it was Travis and then six other guys, and I think I don't, I'm thinking that they worked for Mar- Mike Rogers, but. Um, and Mike Rogers, I know, might have been the boss, but you know, yeah. logging crews are an interesting group of people, and um, I could see him getting out of a truck and yeah, they are. <laughs> che- yeah. checking no, out right, a yeah. UFO hovering, you know, or, sure. or at least um, you know either a bat or a dare because, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. Mike Rogers was the head of the crew; he was responsible for the contract. They were behind schedule, by the way, when this happened, so he was already already under duress. So they were working long hours. So, right. And this happened just after sundown. Uh, the sun was still visible low in the sky or low on the horizon between the trees, but there was already no light pollution. So what they saw was definitive and right in front of them. So, uh, but you're right. It was, uh, Mike Rogers seemed to be the elder statement, the statesman of the group, but they were all young guys. Uh, some more experienced than others. Uh, Alan Dulles, because of his interactions with the law, clearly was the most um, experienced of the guys. And I use that word cautiously. He he had lived the hardest life of the guys. But beyond that, they they were all young guys. So they were clearly 
uh, one, curious, but two, just taken aback by this. I mean, uh, seeing a UFO at close range is a, a not an everyday event. So it affected all of them. I, I don't know if they have any interactions with each other now. I don't know if they remain friends or not. Um, I know Travis and Mike Rogers were close at the time. I don't know what, I don't know the state of their relationship now. I know there's, uh, I don't know, maybe one or two of them that actually travel around and make appearances too, don't they? I, I think, I know there's even at least one, but I don't think it's Mike Rogers who makes it, those public appearances at, at UFO events. Uh, yeah. But somebody you're does. Right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, you're one of them does. I can't recall the name. I, I guess I'm having a bad name with names tonight, but I'm, I'm a, a little, bad time I'm, name. William, I'm a little off myself. So <laughs> you, you just, you were, you were actually on another show last night, I think. So you got like two in a row under your belt. Oh, and, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active. <laughs> you are pretty stuff. active. Yeah. 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 So if, uh, and I, and that it, it, it's a privilege. I'd never take it for granted. So yeah, it's awesome. Um, I enjoy listening to you. I, I listen to you every chance I get when I see you're on, but one of the things that these, you know, Calvin and the Hills and, and, um, Travis have in common. Again, we talked about um, regression therapy and hypnosis. So is it actually a therapy that they're undergoing or is it actually hypnosis to try to pull these memories out of there for, for somebody else's information? Well, I mean, even their own. A large amount of data and testimony has been recovered through those efforts. Um, but it's very difficult to not lead somebody under hypnosis it's very difficult to word your questions carefully and not get them going in a direction that the, that the hypnotist may have uh, they may already have a bias they may already have a motivation to confirm a case or not um, that, that's a slippery slope it's very difficult to maneuver through that without leading the, uh, the person under, under, uh, under hypnosis uh, two, I, I discussed earlier the, the fact that medical professionals don't know how this works. And so uh, you and I, who are not medical professionals, we have no idea. So trained individuals don't know either. That's troubling because you have, and not everybody, but there are certainly unqualified individuals practicing this technique. That's very dangerous because can we rely on that testimony as being valid and objective, I don't know. That, 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 that's certainly a legitimate question that needs to be asked, and I never hear that question asked. Um, I certainly wouldn't want somebody unqualified to work on my car. We wouldn't want somebody unqualified working on an F-16. But somehow, unqualified individuals conducting hypnosis, no one seems to have a trouble with that. that, that I find that troubling. That should be that should be addressed at some point. Well, especially uh, because, when they're, yeah. when they're um, pulling out uh, very sensitive information, that's obviously something that uh, was very traumatic. And um, there are people that yeah. feel like they were victimized, you know? So sure. um, again, yeah. that's, that's a type of abuse. And I think that would be hard on somebody if it wasn't done properly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and then, and it's a very sensitive issue. But is every, is every alleged case of alien abduction actually alien abduction? Is it reasonable to assume that everyone who claims, or everyone, I, use the word, I shouldn't use the word claims, that everyone who feels they've been abducted by extraterrestrials, 
that have experienced something traumatic and emotional, is every one of those cases legitimately explained by extraterrestrial, uh, by an extraterrestrial source? I don't know. Because there are other, and again, I'm, I'm not qualified to talk in that direction because I'm not a medical professional. But having said that, I've, I've done the research to realize that there are medical conditions out there that have um, characteristics that produce um, things that are similar to an abduction. The first thing that comes to mind is sleep paralysis. So, um, yeah, can we accept all testimony at face value as alien abduction? I think we shouldn't. We should be cautious uh, and realize that not all of these are extraterrestrial in origin. But that needs to be done uh, in a very sensitive way because we're dealing with people's people's lives here. We're dealing with people's memories. We're dealing with people's well-being. And that certainly deserves... Uh, a high level of caution, a high level of uh, sensitivity when dealing with this kind of stuff. But from a researcher standpoint, we need to be cautious and realize that not all of these are alien production. Not all of them. I mean, because if they are, that's unreasonable too. Um, uh, how do we determine that? I don't know. <laughs> there, <laughs> yeah, that dreaded word, I don't know again. That yeah. Term, yeah. Well, there's a lot of yeah. afflictions out there and, and people who... Um, who have had an experience that could be construed as an abduction. Um, yeah. It could, yeah. it could be other things, but you mentioned um, sleep paralysis. Now that's one of the more interesting things that I've read about. And one of the interesting things to me is there's not a huge amount of information out there. And there's actually a couple of researchers in great Britain who I tried one of them, one of two, I tried to get on the show and, um, I couldn't get her on, but she's actually, you know, doesn't hold a PhD, um, not a doctor, um, doesn't even call herself a, a hip, uh, I'm sorry, a therapist. And um, she talks and, and deals with people that have, has sleep paralysis. So to me, that's very, very interesting because, you know, that's one of those things that that's still a bit of a mystery. And um, if you actually try to look look it up and find information. It's, it's very hard to find, you know, something that you can read that that's, you know, worthy of, of a show like this rather than a, a medical journal. Yeah. And, and, and another, another angle along that is that again, we're looking at qualifications um, because we're dealing with people's lives, people's intimate memories, their emotions. They deserve uh they deserve to be examined by people who are qualified that don't have any kind of motivation or bias that just want to help these individuals. And, um, when somebody is conducting this kind of research and dealing with people one-on-one and they're not qualified, they're not trained in that direction. Um, that's, that's, that can be dangerous, I think, because, that they're they're just not trained in that specific discipline to be able to deal with people and help them out and interact with them in a healthy, cordial, objective way. Uh, yes, they can get experience through years and years of practice, but they're still not a doctor. They're still not a PhD. They're still not. They haven't gone to medical school to gain the necessary knowledge to do that kind of job, that kind of work, and that's certainly troublesome. That that that's. Uh, 
difficult because I would hate to think that somebody who's not qualified might hurt somebody rather than help them. And, and somebody and somebody who's vulnerable yeah. like that, I mean, a yeah. lot of times won't take the time to to really shop around for the best healthcare that they can find, or or they may not even know what they need. But um, it sounds good no. at the moment when somebody steps in and and offers them at least something. I mean, it's nice when they have an ear. You know, some people actually are looking for somebody to talk to first. And unfortunately I think they fall into the wrong hands, but um, let's wrap this up. And I was going to ask you, I, this past weekend, I know that uh, you were in Texas and, and you had an event you're, you were going to, and, and um, you got to speak there. What's coming up next for you? Oh, uh, not much. <laughs> it's the, it's the winter uh, off season. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm motivated to try to attempt to, Organize some local meetings here in San Antonio. Um, but I don't know how successful those would be. I've been so busy doing our programs like yours and other podcasts. I'm doing like virtually three a week between that and my own research and trying to write some papers to get things published even locally. Um, I don't, I don't see any, any appearances on the horizon other than possibly next year. I, I'll, I was in a UFO festival. I lectured there last month, two weeks prior to the event I was in this, this, this past Saturday. And I'm ended, I've ended up being asked to be one of the prime organizers of the event. So I'm in the process of uh, trying to um, book some new speakers and, and just make some changes to the event in a positive way because we've been getting the good feedback from some of the attendees. Um, but that's not until next August. Uh, between now and then, uh, I really don't have anything on the schedule, but uh, if things pop up, here locally, I'm always open to it because uh, it's uh, it's one of those things where you know I, I'm always honored and privileged to appear on a program like yours or any other any other podcast. Or when someone asks me to appear at a conference, I view it as a privilege because they're giving me the opportunity to discuss my point of view and the efforts of my research to the public. And it's not my job to say no; it's my job to say, "Well, thank you. I would be honored to appear and just do my best to be professional." and and put out put out the UFO issue in a positive light. So we'll see what the future holds, but hopefully I'll get some uh, invitations and go from there. So um, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. So and uh, just waiting for the heat, waiting for the heat to back off here in South Texas. <laughs> really, yeah. It'll cool off by December, I promise. I, I wish we could have a little bit of that heat in Montana. But thank you so much, William Poulin, for joining me. And once again, you're a big part of this elite group that I get to talk to once in a while. And it's really enjoyable for me and, and very educational as well. So I hope you'll join me again in the future and um, take care of yourself and good night, sir. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me again. Be safe. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records.